0: Well, good morning. morning. Isn't that a beautiful song? I uh, I was sitting earlier this morning, I was thinking, and it hit me, that I think this is the third year in a row I've preached the weekend of the men's retreat. (laughs) Which I'm sure is just a coincidence, you know. (laughs) I'm not going to take offense to that or anything, but... Just kidding. Uh... Great to be here this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts in chapter 8. If you want to turn there, we're going to be, I'll be reading out and working out the NASB. If you've never been with us before, we'll be working out the NASB translation. So you pull it up on your phone, uh, grab a Bible in front of you in the pew back, or use your own. Last weekend, um, my wife and I attended a musical rendition of Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat out in New Braunfels, Texas at the Tex Theater because one of our own Momentum gals, Taryn DeMartel, was uh, performing in it. And as I was watching this musical, I couldn't help but think of the story of Joseph. I mean, I was once again, and while I was watching this story, I was once again reminded of just the marvelous ability... And propensity God has to take a situation that on the surface, surface looks awful, just looks hopeless, and then transform that into something that brings about incredible blessing. Now, if you think of the story of Joseph, which we went over here at Wayside last year, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's wrongfully imprisoned by Potiphar. And yet through a series of events, he ends up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And God uses him to save not only his family, but his people from famine and destruction. And at the end of that story, in Genesis chapter 50, we have the marvelous and mysterious text. In chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. He says what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And right here you have this amazing intersection of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and how God brings about His purposes according to His will for His glory and how it coincides with human choices. And this truth is on its greatest display on the cross. When you see the greatest act of evil in the history of mankind, which brings about the greatest amount of good for God's glory. And this is why when it, it is helpful for us when it comes to God, that we, don't really, we can't really know what he's doing until he's done. We cannot know for sure what God is doing until God is done. And we see this truth in history. We see it on the cross. If we're going to be honest, we probably see it at times in our own life. And we see it in this morning's text in chapter 8. Because as we open up to Acts chapter 8, we need to think back about what just happened in chapter 7. The church just experienced something for the first time. One of their own was killed. One of their own was martyred. Up until that point in time, the apostles had been imprisoned. They had been beaten. But nobody had died. Nobody had been persecuted to the point of death until Stephen was stoned. And yet, while this death of Stephen was a terrible event, it's actually going to accomplish something remarkable. Something quite important for the kingdom of God. Because Stephen's death, which was meant to swallow up or squash the early church, is actually going to fan the flame as the gospel is now going to go out and spread out to the surrounding regions, ultimately leading to an event that's going to change everything. So, with that being said, let's look at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, right after Stephen has passed. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Stephen is martyred. Mass persecution breaks out. The disciples remain in Jerusalem, they huddle up, but so many of the other new believers in the, at the beginning of the church, they are dispersed. They are scattered throughout the surrounding regions. And as they are scattered, guess what they go about doing. Verse four tells us, It says, "Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word." It's the first big missionary movement in the history of the church. And the impetus was Stephen's martyrdom that we just saw in chapter 7. Because up until that point, the church had been comprised entirely in Jerusalem and had been comprised entirely of Jews. And because of that, they had not yet carried out the mandate that Jesus gave them at the beginning of uh, of the book of Acts before the ascension, where he says, but you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so these believers are scattered about because of the persecution in Jerusalem. They go about preaching the word and Luke is going to take time to focus on one guy in particular. A guy by the name of Philip. So let's look at verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now on the surface, that may seem like a very plain verse. But there is some incredible depth and incredible things going on in in this one verse. And so I want to take some time and unpack that. And I want to unpack it by asking and answering three questions. Number one, who is Philip? Number two, who is in Samaria? And number three, why is it a big deal that Philip is proclaiming Christ in Samaria? Well, in regards to who is Philip, we've met him before. This is not our first exposure to Philip. We met him at the beginning of chapter 6. As the church was growing, many of the Hellenistic widows, the Greek speaking Jews, they were feeling neglected by the church. And so the apostles appointed seven godly men, seven Hellenistic Jews to tend and to cater and to go to the needs of these women, and Philip is one of them. And so Philip is scattered because of this persecution. And so he leaves Jerusalem and he heads north to a region called Samaria, proclaiming Christ to the people who lived there who were known as the Samaritans. So then the question is, well, who are the Samaritans? And to answer that question, it requires a little bit of history that I'm going to compress in about 45 seconds. But when the kingdom of Israel splits at the death of Solomon... The northern kingdom becomes Israel, and the southern kingdom becomes Judah. And neither one does a very good job following after the Lord, but especially not the northern kingdom. They're terrible. And so God sends Assyria from the north in 722 B.C. to conquer Israel. And what Assyria does is they kick a lot of the Jews out, but they leave a number of them there. But they repopulate it with surrounding peoples and other Canaanite people groups. And those people come in and they end up intermarrying and intermixing with the Jews. And their offspring are the Samaritans. And so when you think of the Samaritan, what the easiest thing to understand would be is to know that they were considered Half-breeds and heretics. They are considered half-breeds because they married out of the family and heretics because they changed the worship and centered it in a different place than Jerusalem. And they are hated. They are despised for it. They are sellouts. And so this makes Philip preaching the gospel to them significant for a number of reasons. For one... It's showing that this, the explosive truth that this gospel is not just going to be for the Jews and it's not just going to be in Jerusalem. God is doing a new thing, it's a bigger thing, and this thing's going to go out from the Jew, it's going to go to the Samaritan in chapter 8, and it's going to go to the non Jew in chapter 10, the Gentile. As God is swinging open the door to his kingdom for all peoples to enter in. Secondly, Philip preaching the gospel to Samaritans is important for us to understand in regards to evangelism and God's distinct way of going about evangelism. Notice that the first person mentioned taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem is not one of the apostles. It's not one of the apostles. But a Hellenistic Jewish convert named Philip And Hellenistic Jews were kind of a second-class Jew. They didn't speak the native tongue. They were not necessarily from there. They didn't work out of the Hebrew text. So many Jews of that day looked down upon these guys. And yet, had it been one of the apostles who had gone down to Samaria to preach the gospel, one of the professionals, first-class Jew, the Samaritans most likely would have said no thank you and rebuffed them because of their background, because of their position, and because of the distrust that existed between the two groups. And this is a great reminder for each one of us that God has uniquely placed and equipped us as part of his mission in this world. One of our college leaders here at Wayside is a guy by the name of Bruce Gonzalez, And Bruce teaches math at Lee High School. But Bruce has also spent time in the wide world of death metal music. Like I'm sure many of you have, right? (laughs) A genre that's not particularly friendly to the gospel. Not fertile soil for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet Bruce has spent time in that community because he was a part of that community as he was, yes, a member of a death metal Christian band. And so because of that, Bruce has been able to speak truth into that community in a way that you or I never would, it never would have been possible. The reality is, is that there are places that only you can go. Amen. And there are people that only you can reach. They're not waiting for professionals to come. They're waiting for you. And the issue is not the size or the scope of your sphere of influence or even your giftedness in ministry. The issue is your faithfulness within your sphere and your faithfulness to the mission of God with the people whom he has uniquely placed For you to reach. Thirdly. Philip preaching the gospel. To these hated half-breed. Heretical Samaritans. Is significant. Because it shows the past barriers. That had been erected. The walls that had been built. Dividing people from one another. That because of Christ's work on the cross. He had knocked those down. Those were no longer active. As Paul writes at the end of. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 28, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now hear me, this passage in the book of Galatians is not saying that differences and distinctions don't exist. He's not saying males and females are the same. What he is saying, though, is that in spite of these differences and in spite of these distinctions, there is spiritual equality amongst all. That God has equal, given equal value to us. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Because Christ died for sinners. Male, female. Black, white, Everyone in between. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated. And when we as believers withhold the gospel of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God from a particular people, a race, a nationality, a gender, a socioeconomic demographic... We live in a way that is inconsistent with our salvation. Inconsistent with the gospel. And most of all, inconsistent with our Savior. And that is just not okay. There is no room for racism or prejudice in the heart of the believer. It's repugnant to God. And he went to the cross to prove it. So, Philip the evangelist heads towards these hated Samaritans, preaching a gospel of reconciliation, and God is going to authenticate it the same way he authenticated it for Peter with signs and miracles. Look at verse 6. It says the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much rejoicing in that city. So here's the scene. Philip goes to Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. Miracles are happening. People are responding. Everyone's taking notice, including a guy there by the name of Simon. We meet Simon in verse 9, and here's how he's described. Now, there was a man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So he's a sorcerer. He's a magician. He's got some type of unique ability. And he's going around showing that off and then claiming to be someone that is great. And many agree with his assessment. Look at verse 10. He says, And they all, from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So he's, he's people are impressed. He's gifted. He's charismatic. He wants to make Samaria great again. Yes. <laughs> and yet he is about to meet, meet his match and then some. Because the same people who were mesmerized by his magic and persuaded by his power are going to just drop him like a bad habit. They're just going to drop him and turn towards something greater, including Simon himself. Look at verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. When the sorcery of Simon was contrasted with the greatness of God, the difference between the two was unmistakable. Unmistakable. As I was thinking about that this week, it took me back to an experience I had last summer. Last April, during Fiesta, my dear friend Jeb Locke and I went downtown to hear a U2 cover band. Now, as I've mentioned on numerous occasions, I really, 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 really like U2. That's a band, for those of y'all who are looking at me funny. okay? I've seen them live 15 times. That's not enough. Eat your heart out. There will be more. Anyways. So last April, Jeb and I go see this cover band, and as we go listen to them under the highway in downtown San Antonio... It was great. We were front row. I'm taking pictures. I'm taking video. Jeb and I are taking selfies. We're like, man, those guys are talented. That's a good deal. We had a good time. That being said, two months later, Jeb and I once again were front row. Once again listening to U2 music. This time, though, it was not in San Antonio under some dingy highway with 100 other U2 dorks. But rather in Chicago at the United Center with 20,000 of the most intelligent, sophisticated, (laughs) passionate, humble people that I've ever been around. But more importantly, this was no cover band we were listening to. This was the real thing. We were at a real U2 show. And let me tell you something, it was so much better. I had to erase pictures and videos of the cover band to make room for the real U2 there. And while that may be comical, one of the tragedies, I'm convinced one of the tragedies of the human experience is that many people live a life where they are content with a cover band. They settle for a mediocre and shallow existence because they they either are unable or refuse to see that the cover band is only a shadow of the real thing. It's just a shadow. C.S. Lewis in Weight of Glory writes these words. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then Lewis writes, we are far too easily pleased. The things that the world loves to portray... As the keys to a fulfilled life, whether it be money, success, power, sexual freedom, those things are but mud pies that keep us from the holiday at the sea that knowing our Lord and following after Him wholeheartedly truly is. We are far too easily pleased And we are far too easily fooled. But the beauty of this passage is that the Samaritans are not fooled. They see the contrast between Simon, what Simon's preaching, and what Philip is preaching. And their hearts are pierced by the gospel. And they turn away from the counterfeit cover band that Simon is leading. And they turn to the real thing. They turn to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of their salvation. And this news of repentance and salvation and baptism is going to spread all throughout social media, right? I mean, it's all over the place. And it's going to make its way south to the apostles who are there in Jerusalem. And they're going to hear of what God is doing, and they're going to say, we need to go see what's going on in Samaria. And so Peter and John make their way up. Verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot going on in these few verses. And so follow me here. We're going to try to unpack this a little bit. But what I want to start off by saying is it's important to understand that when the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem, all right, as the church moves forth from Jerusalem, the role of the apostles is going to change a little bit. They are going to move more from a ministry of initiation to a ministry of authentication, Move from a ministry of initiation to a ministry of authentication. And that doesn't mean they're not out preaching. That doesn't mean they're out doing work. But what it does mean is one of their big responsibilities becomes authenticating the movement of God in the church and the people of God in the early church. They're going to go from a sales rep to a district manager. They're going from a teacher to a principal. And this is by design. And so they head to Samaria to investigate and ultimately authenticate what has transpired. And when they arrive, they see that God has truly done a mighty work in these people. They have believed in the gospel. They have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They are ready to follow after him. But then we see a really curious text. Verse 15. It says that Peter and John prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And you may be sitting there saying, first of all, you may be sitting there saying, oh, who cares? I wasn't paying attention. But some of y'all <laughs> may be sitting there saying, wait a second. It says they believed, it says they were baptized, and yet you're also telling me they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. That's confusing. Because it seems to me the normative pattern of salvation in the church is that God moves in me, I respond with faith, I'm indwelt by His Spirit, sealed forever, and then I subsequently am baptized where I publicly proclaim the inward transformation, the inward reality that has occurred. I mean, Michael, isn't that the normative pattern for salvation and for baptism? And my answer to that is yes. Yes, that is the normal pattern. But here's the deal. The book of Acts is not occurring at a normal time. This is not a normal book. The book of Acts is occurring at a time where there is great transition, great change, great movement Okay, in God's redemptive plan. He's doing a new thing. And this is what makes the book of Acts in many ways so difficult to interpret. This is the challenge. Because here is the ultimate question. How much of what we read in the Apostolic Church, in the book of Acts, the Apostles' Church, in the book of Acts is prescriptive? And how much of what we read about the Apostolic Church in the book of Acts is descriptive? In other words... How much of what we read are things that we should try to recreate at Wayside Chapel versus how much of what we read is just a description of what God is doing in the early church and that is unique to the apostles, unique to that time period, and unique to the birth of the church. That is the question. With that being said, I think I can explain to you a good, give you a good explanation as to why God acts in a non-normative, non-prescriptive way in this passage. As I have already mentioned, there was great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, similar to a Palestinian-Israeli divide of our day and age. And while Philip was probably more effective as the one to reach the Samaritans. Just think if God had only used Philip throughout that entire process. There most likely would still be a divide between the groups. The Samaritans would say, we don't need the apostles. We don't need Jerusalem. We don't need the Jews. And that divide would have remained. They would say, we're not come under their authority. No way. But by God using Peter and John to affirm the Samaritan's salvation and to authenticate it by the laying on of hands and the dissension of the Spirit, it showed the Samaritans that they were truly in this together. God was doing a new thing. They were united as one in Christ and that they could not only trust the apostles but come under their authority too. Secondly, it also affirmed to the apostles that God was not going to limit this thing to the Jews. He's not going to limit it, right? Because had that event not happened, or had they not been there for that event, what would have remained? Great skepticism on the part of the apostles that God had truly moved in the Samaritans. Because they're what? What are they? They're half-breeds and heretics. Is God really going to move in the hearts of Samaritans? So in reality, God is being incredibly merciful and incredibly wise and in withholding the Holy Spirit from coming until Peter and John arrive. Think about it. He's going to do it again in chapter 10 when he goes to the non-Jew. Think about this pattern. Chapter 2, Peter's preaching, Pentecost. Chapter 8, Peter laying on the hands, Samaritan Pentecost. Chapter 10, Gentiles, guess who's there? Peter. Gentile Pentecost. So it's God's way of affirming to the early church that this gospel is not going to be limited to just the Jews. It's going to go from the Jew to the Samaritan to the Gentile to all peoples of the earth who will be welcome in the kingdom of God. And he authenticates it through the Holy Spirit coming down, really in the presence of Peter. Okay? And so while all peoples are going to be welcomed in the kingdom of God, it's also clear that certainly not all beliefs or motives are. And our guy Simon is about to find that out the hard way. Look at verse 18. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon is there. He sees how the Spirit comes down with the laying on of hands. And what does he do? He says, I want me some of that. I want that. That's what I'm talking about. That's Simon's response. And he offers the apostles money for some insider trading. In regards to how to do this. And while we may be appalled and saddened by Simon's response, we should not be surprised or shocked, should we? Think about the garden. Let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve. What you'll find is one of the most subtle and yet destructive weapons the enemy uses on us is the weapon of comparison. The weapon of comparison. Now, comparison in itself is not bad. It's it's, it's necessary. But when comparison is mixed with greed and pride and lust and selfishness, it can poison us from the inside out and rob us of our God-given joy. And we all struggle with this. Myself included. We all do. I mean, just hop on Facebook for 15 minutes. Scroll, some, scroll down your friend feed, and here's what you'll realize. Everyone has a better marriage than me. <laughs> Everyone's married but me. Everyone has better and smarter kids than me. Everyone has a better job than me. Everyone has more money than me. Everyone has better and more friends than me. Basically, everyone just has a flat-out better life than me. And what happens is we become depressed and we become angry and we become bitter towards a friend or our spouse or our boss or even God because our life does not include some of the things that we see on other people's Facebook feeds. And it robs us of our joy. And instead of looking up to God and being filled with gratitude for what He has done for us, we look to our left and we look to our right and we become jealous and bitter because of what He's done for others. And the reality is we've been given so much. Each one of us. Life. A mind. A body. Relationships. The family of God. God has given of Himself in us in His Spirit. Redemption, hope, eternity with Him. The joy of the Lord. And we lose our sensitivity to the kindness of God when we spend all of our time looking left and right, comparing ourselves to others. And it is destructive. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily fooled. And we are far too easily distracted from the kindness of God. And while Philip knew that the gospel was God's gift for God's glory, Simon thought that the gospel was God's gift to him for personal gain. And that attitude earns him a strong rebuke from the apostles. Look at verse 20. It says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come my way. Simon had experienced marvelous things. He had heard the gospel. He had seen miracles. He had seen Peter and John. He had been in the presence of the Samaritan Pentecost. And yet, after all of that, he looks to Peter and John he says, I want what they have. And Peter's response literally is, your silver be with you in perdition." J.B. Phillips, scholar J.B. Phillips paraphrases verse 20 this way, pardon my language. He says, to hell with you and your money, Simon. It's a powerful, powerful rebuke. Now people always ask, was Simon a believer? I have no idea. I would say that Peter's rebuke does not look promising, but maybe. Maybe. He wouldn't be the first person to come to faith and make a horrible mistake. So I don't know. Only God knows. That's not my job. But what I do know is that Simon does not get it at this point in time. He thinks he can control God. He can control God. But you cannot control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God the third person of the Trinity. And you cannot control God, not by the laying on of hands, not by a chanting a chant, not by giving money, not by holding a position such as a pastor or an elder. God can use those things, but you do not control God because God is God and God is sovereign and God does as he pleases. John 3 tells us that. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And while you cannot control the Spirit of God, life change and transformation happens when the Spirit of God takes control of you. And we see that in verse 25 in closing. Verse 25 says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is actually incredibly powerful. So Philip and John and Peter, they get done with what they're doing. They head back to Jerusalem, but along the way... They stop in various villages in Samaria preaching the gospel. And this is incredibly powerful for all of them. But I would imagine it was especially poignant for the apostle John. Because as John is traveling through Samaria, he might have come to the village that maybe less than a year ago he came to with his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, John, I want you to go into that village of the Samaritans, and I want you to basically rent out a spot for us. We want to stay here. And they go into the Samaritan village, and what does the Samaritan say? You are not welcome here. You cannot stay here. Get out. And how does John respond? Does he stop and pray for him? Oh, have mercy on the Samaritans. No the son of thunder shows up. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? God, can we nuke these fools? Because I'm angry. And they've rejected you and it's time for judgment time to wipe them out jesus that's the son of thunder that's john and what's amazing is the man who wanted the samaritans to be incinerated with judgment is now doing everything in his power to keep them from it it's incredible but that's the power and the transforming work of the gospel in our lives And it begs the question this morning, is there somebody that resides in your personal Samaria? Do you have someone in your personal Samaria where when push comes to shove, you're more like, rain it down. (laughs) Instead of, how can I pray and reach this person so that they can know the Lord? John called down thunder and a year later he called out for repentance because the gospel changes everything. It changed the apostles. It changed the Jews. It changed the Samaritans. We're going to find out in a few weeks in chapter 10. It changes the Gentiles. And 2,000 years later, it has the power to change each one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. And first of all, God, just in praise. For you are God and we are not. And you work all things according to your good purpose, even when it's foggy. Even when we cannot see how A leads to B or how B leads to F. You are perfect in executing your perfect plan. And you are good and you are faithful. God, I thank you for your word this morning and what it teaches us. About how the, foot, about how the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that racism is eliminated and prejudice is eliminated and how you died so that all may be set free from their sin and know you as Lord. And I pray if there's somebody in here this morning, God, who's maybe been coming to church time and time again, time and time again, but has never had the gospel pierce their heart, God, that you would move and that they would respond with a confession that I am a sinner far from God in need of a Savior. But God, in your great love and your great mercy and your great wisdom and holiness, you came down, took on flesh, lived a perfect life and died on the cross for my sin and the sin of the world. And you prove that what you said is true and you prove that you are the true Son of God because on the third day you rose again. And it is all about you, Jesus. God, I pray if there's anybody in here who's never taken that step of faith, that Spirit, you would move in their life. And God, for those of us here who have, those of us here who know you as Savior, God, I pray you would continue to transform our heart, transform our character, transform us and make us more like you. So that when we see those, we don't call down judgment from heaven, but we call out for repentance through the gospel. And we leave judgment to you. God, you are so good to us. Make us more like you. May we be a people who show the greatness of God on this earth in preparation for eternity with God in the life to come. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for this church. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.